1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. 2019 was the 500 year anniversary of the launch of Ferdinand Magellan's voyage around the world, a milestone marked by commemorative sailings, museum exhibitions, and a joint submission from Spain and Portugal to UNESCO. Two years later, the Philippines had their own commemoration of Magellan's voyage, the 500th anniversary of his death at the hands of local leader Lapu-Lapu, a master voyager in Spain and Portugal, a defeated imperialist in the Philippines. These are just two of the ways that Magellan's image has evolved and changed over the past five centuries. What was the man actually like? Felipe Fernandez Armesto tries to get at who Magellan really was in his latest book, Straits Beyond the Myth of Magellan. Relying on first-hand accounts of Magellan's voyage, Felipe portrays Magellan as a self-promoter, devious over-promiser, lover of chivalric literature, ruthless authoritarian, and at the end, a believer in his own hype. Felipe holds the William P. Reynolds Chair of Mission in Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame, where he's professor in the Departments of History and Classics, and the program in the History and Philosophy of Science. His most recent books are Out of Our Minds, and as editor, The Oxford Illustrated History of the World. Today, Felipe and I talk about Magellan. The man, his voyage, what it was actually supposed to do, and the legacy of his expedition. So, Felipe, thank you so much for joining us on the Asian Review of Books podcast today. Um, I wanted to start with maybe Magellan's early life, you know, or his life before his expedition. You know, what do we know about it? And also, you know, why did he defect from Portugal to Spain?
1: Well, thank you, Nicholas. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the question. In order to understand M- Magellan, you, you need to begin with the fact that he's an orphan. His parents die when he's young. He's the son of a, a minor Portuguese noble family who live really on the kind of edge of the country, right up in the, the north. So he's an outsider. And he's an outsider who's kind of down on his luck, really, from very early on in his life. He's educated at the court of King Manuel I, the the, King Manuel the Fortunate of Portugal, and. There he's given an education which is almost entirely military. I mean, it's really focused on producing squires to fight for the king. There are are opportunities for wider education. You could learn Latin and Greek at court if you had the talent for it. But Magellan doesn't seem to have had that talent. He was really limited to this very military way of upbringing. His education was in arms, not letters. And the whole experience seems to have left him with a sort of chip on his shoulder. And he's a person who kind of resents the fact that he's been cheated of his birthright, and he's always looking for opportunities above all. His reading, he reads chivalric romances, what I call the station bookstall fiction, or the airport, bookstore, pulp, fiction of the day. And these are, you know, stories of of heroism in which heroes down on their luck make good, usually by having fantastic adventures, seaborne adventures very often, conquering islands, fighting monsters, giants. This is the sort of thing that he's, he's brought up reading. He kind of models his ambitions on those fictional heroes. I think, therefore, the reason why he defects from Portugal and goes to seek his fortune in Spain is because he is very dissatisfied with the progress he makes at the Portuguese court and in Portuguese service. He is sent to fight wars in the Indian. Ocean, but he never really makes the grade. He never achieves the knighthood that he craves or the sort of money <laughs> he tries to invest in various various business operations. They all go wrong. So he never really makes the grade that this upbringing, this reading has inspired him to seek. And he goes to Spain really in resentment against the way the king of Portugal has failed to provide him with the opportunities and rewards he craved and requested.
0: I'm, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but you mentioned kind of his—you um, know—he comes from kind of a world of squires and you know that kind of medieval heritage. And it reminds me of something you pop up in your book, which is this—the the the theory that that Patagonia is actually a reference to um, this old kind of—I think it's—I think it's a medieval novel or medieval book um i guess how important is this i guess is uh this kind of framing this kind of literary framing on understanding what magellan did and what he was like
1: yeah it's not a theory i mean this is one of the few facts you'd be absolutely sure of is that patagonia the name of this part of of what is now argentina of South America, where he spends winter quarters on his great voyage, Uh, really pretty much he's there from March to October 1520. In that part of the world, uh, he bestows upon it, uh, effectively, the name Patagonia, because one of the books that he read, the one of the books that most influenced him, was a chivalric romance—not actually a medieval one. It was published in fifteen oh nine, so about four years after he, if you like, graduates from his formal education. A novel in which uh, one of the giants who, who characterise the story and who are always sort of fighting against the the hero is called Patagon, which of course means Bigfoot, And when Magellan gets to Patagonia, he, and indeed I think pretty much the whole crew, see the people whom they encounter as giants. All the accounts that have survived emphasize how, how tall these people were. And some of the descriptions actually invest these people with characteristics that I'm sure they never really had, but which are drawn from this fictional reading. So that's why he calls one of the natives whom he captures in order to take him back as a specimen back to, to Europe, he calls that native Pathogon and tribute to the the giant in the, in the storybook. And do you know that? I think that brings us to the second part of your question because that's a very good example of how I think all of us in our lives are modelled by our education, and specifically if we're literate, if we're intellectuals in any sense, we're modelled by what we read. I would say you are what you read. And when you have an experience like these guys were having in Patagonia, an experience of an environment that no one had ever recorded Before, a place that no one from your own homeland, your own part of the world had ever seen, and people who were utterly unprecedented and unparalleled in the experience of Europeans at the time. What do you do? How do you understand these new experiences you're having, these new sights that you're seeing, and these new? people that you're encountering of course you know this is basic psychology you map them onto what you already think you know and of course that has to come from reading because no one's ever really experienced it so it's got to come from that kind of vicarious
0: experience
1: that we call imagination
0: so i want to kind of take a step back to the to the bigger picture which is um you know, Magellan's voyage is, is part of, I'm gonna use the word competition, but kind of this like competition between Spain and Portugal about, um, about how to get spice from the spice islands. And I wonder if you might kind of explain a bit more about that, like, what was the like, what was the I'm gonna use the word geopolitical, even though it's probably centuries too early to use that term, the kind of the kind of geopolitical context in which um, Spain decided to fund Magellan's voyage.
1: Spices, and specifically cloves, nutmeg, and mace, were the most valuable products per unit of bulk in world trade at the time, with a huge demand in China and quite a big demand in Europe. So if you could dominate the sources of supply, or if you could get a grip on a yeah, substantial part of the trade in those items, then you could make money. And above all, you know, for Spain and Portugal, you've got to remember this is before, you know, the great sort of age of European world hegemony. It's before the Spanish and Portuguese empires really acquire the vast dimensions and wealth that later characterises them. And there are still, you know, poor backwaters in the world economy, right on the fringe of the known world. They're looked down on by the far richer economies and more advanced knowledge systems that you find in Asia, especially around the Indian Ocean. In Islam and in China, people look down on Europe. So they've got a lot of ground to make up. They're like, I liken them to yeah. Developing countries nowadays desperately drilling for offshore resources. So those spices are tremendously alluring to the rulers of both these monarchies and to their merchant classes. And in fourteen ninety four, Spain and Portugal were inveterate enemy kingdoms. Divided the world between them into two spheres of navigation, one which was going to be a Portuguese monopoly, the other was going to be a Spanish monopoly. But what they didn't take into account was where did the spice islands, because these spices were all produced you know, in about sort of five small islands in what we now know as the Malaccas. They hadn't taken into account where those islands fell in their division of the world. It wasn't clear whether they fell on the Spanish side or the Portuguese side. And that's the basis for this tremendous competition between Spain and Portugal to control them, or at least to get privileged access to their trade. I guess there's one other element that one has to bear into account, which is of course people didn't know how big the world was. they had pretty shrewd calculations which were inherited from ancient sources, but nobody had really verified these and Columbus had argued that the world was very small, and therefore it was I mean, if Columbus was right, and Magellan pretty much agreed with him about this. If Columbus was right, then the Spice Islands were accessible by sailing across the Atlantic and around the Americas, as well as by the route which the Portuguese followed around the Cape of Good Hope and across the Indian Ocean. So that's the basis of the competition. It's a kind of race. has to be said, by the time Magellan sails, the Portuguese have already won that race. They've reached the Spice Islands by their chosen Route. Uh, But the King of Spain, who at the time was a a new young king with, you know, full of hope and ambition, with also tremendous interest in geography, he thought that it was worth taking this tremendous risk of investing in, in Magellan in order to try and steal a march on the Portuguese and pioneer a new route that would be within Spain's zone of navigation.
0: Well, that's a good segue to my next question, which is, what was Magellan's voyage supposed to do? Um, and I'm deliberately saying supposed to do, because that's one of the big points of contention on, on on the expedition. Um, so what was Magellan supposed to be doing?
1: Supposed in the sense of, you know, what did the king's orders say? He was supposed to sail, across the Atlantic, through or around the Americas, as we now call them, and thence to the Spice Islands, so approaching them from the east. Um, whereas, as I say, the Portuguese had already established an alternative and what turned out to be a practical route uh, approaching them um, from the west. That was... That was That project was backed by the the king to an extraordinary degree. Spain typically didn't waste money on these adventures by explorers because most plans were crazy. Magellan's was amongst the craziest of the lot. There was very little practical chance of any advantageous outcome to this expedition. Uh, And so it was a kind of gamble. And the king was prepared to invest really an extraordinary amount of, of resources, uh, over 6 million maravedis, at a time when the entire income of the crown annually was 520 million. So it's a very this was a really major undertaking. The rest of the money was made up by a, a merchant who had some experience, a Spanish merchant who had some experience of trade with Portugal and who knew that the st- Ice trade would, if they could get you know a share of it, would produce fabulous returns. And he had a lot of spare cash, so for him it was, again you know just a gamble. Uh, and and I suppose if you've got spare resources and you're an investor and you haven't got anything to invest in, you're more likely to invest in something crazy uh, than you would in normal or normal circumstances. So that was really the basis of McGillan's being able to raise his finance in Spain, something which would have been impossible at the time in Portugal. They'd already, you know, sewn up the, the project to their own satisfaction by much more direct and cheap methods.
0: So, I mean, obviously, Magellan does his own thing. <laughs> he he um, This is a, obviously a big point of contention. Um, but could you chart out the voyage that his ships actually took, um, especially And also, kind of, how long each leg of it took. You know, it sounds like getting down to what's now called the Straits of Magellan was actually a very long and arduous process. Um, You're
1: right, of course, Nicholas, to say that there was a tremendous amount of tension about what the voyage was really going to do. Because although it was supposed from Perspective of the king's orders to go to the Malaccas and stake a claim in a share of the spice trade, Magellan had a different project of his own, which was going to the Philippines. He knew about because he'd lived in Malacca, in what is now Malaysia, for a while in 1511. And he picked up a lot of information about the Philippines, and above all, he knew that the Philippines had gold, and gold, you know, in a way, put spices on one side. If you've got gold, you know, you can do all the trade that you want. He also knew the Philippines were very close to and favorable for trade with China, and China was the world's you know richest economy and biggest market. At the time. So his personal ambitions are focused on the Philippines. I think we can prove this with reference to his correspondence with the King of Spain, because he arranged that if he found more than five or six islands, he would be able to have a an inordinate share of the profits of those extra discoveries. And since, as far as people knew at the time, there were five islands in what they called the Malaccas and what they called the Spice Islands, that means that he was definitely envisaging finding somewhere else. And indeed, when he gets... To the latitude of the Moluccas on his voyage, and he knows the latitude of the Moluccas because it was well known that they were on the equator, so that's one of a few latitudes, you can be pretty certain when you're on it. When he gets to that latitude, he bypasses the Moluccas and goes straight for the Philippines, the way he thinks the Philippines are. As for the the phases that you ask about, which unfolded in the course of the voyage, of course, it depends what you mean by phases or bits of the voyage in one sense. I mean, to me, there are really two phases. If you're interested in the life of Magellan, in how he changes and develops, how the experience of the voyage affects his character and his mental and spiritual development, if that's what you're interested in, and that's really primarily my own interest in the book, because it's a biography, then there are really two phases. There's a sort of Atlantic phase in which he gets progressively more ruthless. And this is this phase is characterized by internal dissensions, a struggle for power in the fleet, which culminates in a, in a mutiny in which Magellan murders, garrots or maroons all his main enemies on the fleet. And then the second voyage is the crossing of the Pacific, which is, in a way, just as terrible, <laughs> because although for the first time, really, in the voyage, they get a sustainedly favourable wind, it just carries them further and further into disaster. But really, I mean, I suppose if you want a kind of chronological... <clears throat> breakdown which is what you asked me for you would go something like this September 1519 to February 1520 they're crossing the Atlantic amidst all this rivalry and bloodshed And then from March to October 1520, they're wintering on the coast of of Patagonia with their supplies dwindling, with one of their ships being lost and with the mutiny culminating in Magellan, performing all those deeds of of violence, and also deeds of violence towards the indigenous people, I might add. And then, um, I guess, from... um, October to December 1520. They're sailing through the Strait of Magellan. At last, they've found this, this strait that they were seeking, and it proves to be a very terrible experience because it's like a wind tunnel with the wind against them, and they're sailing in this unfamiliar environment of towering cliffs and, and creatures whom they had never expected to. Encounter and those dissensions and the 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 mutinies are continuing. Indeed, you know, at this point, the main ship in the fleet deserts, and then there's the phase, this terrible crossing of the Pacific, uh, and that lasts from say November 1520 to March 1521. So it's a terribly long and gruelling. Uh, experience and and by the time they finally sight land, which is in Guam, or land that they can actually kind of um, make land at, they are so depleted in resources that they're they're eating literally they're chewing with gums swollen by scurvy on leather which they've stripped from the lining of the of the masts and one of the 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 surviving account says that rats were sold. I can't even remember for how much, like twelve ducats each, if you could get one. So they're 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 starving, and of course, all along the voyage of the Pacific, you know, they're they they're throwing dead seamen overboard periodically. So that's that's the point at which they you know, in a way the voyages is, um, uh, is over. They spend. A while, say from about March 1521 to May 1521, in the Philippines, where all Magellan's ambitions of founding a fief, conquering land, getting a lot of gold, all of that fails and um, ends with his own death in really a foredoomed death in a battle that he cannot. Win, and then uh, after that, the the rest of the crew hightail it. They wander around. They seek a way back to Spain. Some of them via the uh, the Malacca's, uh, and eventually, in October, fifteen twenty-two, the handful of survivors from this terrible voyage, which killed ninety percent of the um, uh, effective complement of the the crew, if you take out the people who deserted and so on, to the rate is 90% of the handful of survivors, in fact, just 18 survivors, get back to Spain in October 1522.
0: So there are a lot of segues there to questions that I want to ask. Um, but maybe let's start with, you know, you talk about um, you know, kind of the, the state of the expedition when they finally make it to, you know, quote-unquote Asia. Um, when they make it to, to the Philippines, um, and so how does I mean how does the expedition, how does Magellan interact with local communities? Um, he kind of gets co-opted into this kind of local um, power struggle as it, as it were um, and then obviously you know how how of course does that decision lead to his death?
1: Well, his first encounter with indigenous people in Asia is actually in Guam where they they make their first. Land for the the end of the crossing of the Pacific, and by that time the Magellan and his crew are so weak and enfeebled by starvation and disease uh, that they are easy prey for the the indigenous people who come on board and help themselves to whatever they want in fact the Spaniards call. Um, the Kukwam the, and the neighboring islands, the Isles of Thieves. I mean, that's the first name that Europeans bestow on that archipelago. Uh, and Magellan responds by, in a typical way, I mean, he, he does this really throughout his his voyage when he's displeased with the response of indigenous people to his arrival. He, he goes on shore and he kills ordinators and he burns villages. Uh, obviously um, this is not a good basis for fruitful relationships and the Spaniards have to flee from Guam. And then they go to the Philippines Well Magellan sees an, a political opportunity, I think it's fair to say. And I, in a way, I think he was quite right. I think he was quite shrewd to appreciate that the Philippines were divided amongst all these many small states, small kingdoms, uh, and that he he could see that they were kind of ripe for some kind of political unification. So he looks for a local ruler to back against the rest, for a local ruler to promote as the chief of this potential unified state that he sees an opportunity for creating. But he all goes wrong because <laughs> he, he, if you like, he sort of backs the wrong Roger. He chooses the wrong guy, who's actually not a very powerful king, and, and finds himself confronting other far more powerful enemies. And it's in battle against one of those, and his attempt to impose this new political future on the islands that he uh, that he meets his his end. Very interesting that the Spaniards are defeated both in Guam and in the Philippines by indigenous forces. There's nothing inevitable about Europeans having victories on their remote colonial frontiers. In fact, quite the the reverse, I would say, on the whole. Europeans uh, are not well-equipped to make remote conquests. If they're going to succeed in making them, they have to do, so with indigenous help.
0: So, you know, obviously, Magellan is killed in the Philippines, um, which is why, of course, it's always it's always kind of strange to kind of think of Magellan as, as, the, as the first person to circumnavigate the globe, because actually he doesn't. Um, and so I just want to have a quick question about kind of that, that actual last leg um, from the Philippines back to Spain, you know, with um, I think it's what is his name um, El Elcano captains the last ship back. So, I just want to have a quick question about kind of how actually did those final remnants of the expedition make it back to Spain?
1: Magellan, of course, never even contemplated a circumnavigation. Mm-hmm. Of the world. In fact, it would have been contrary to his his orders to do so, and there would have been no sense in his contemplating a circumnavigation of the world because his whole expedition was mooted, was formulated on the basis of a small globe, and therefore it would have made far better sense to return back the way he'd come. And that was indeed his intention, and quite clearly the first intention of the survivors who remained after his own death in battle. And they had two ships left at that stage, and they decided that well, they had three, but they had to scuttle one of them. So they had two, effectively, they've got two ships left, and they decide that one ship is going to try and get back to Spain across the Pacific and via the Americas, and the other is going to risk infringing the treaty with Portugal and sail back to Europe by the Portuguese. Route. And what they say, the way they explain this is they say, well, they hope they that at least one of the ships will make it and be able to bring news of the failure of the expedition back to. Uh, the King of Spain. So the the, the ship that attempts <laughs> the Pacific voyage. it's like a complete disaster. And most of the crew die and they encounter all this terrible weather and storms and stuff. And the, the ship is is you know about to sink when they finally sort of hightail it back to port and they all fall into the hands of the Portuguese. And those who survive in prison they have terrible sort of long period of imprisonment and suffering and most of them Die and finally a handful uh, eventually repatriated by the Portuguese. The other ship, the Vitoria, which, as you rightly say, was captained by Juan Ostianek, heads back via the Portuguese route to Europe. And of course, that's a terrible voyage as well, because you know they're in perpetual fear of being captured by the Portuguese. Eventually, when they get to the Cape Verde Islands, most of them are captured by the Portuguese. And these final, you know, surviving feuds, a terrible story because, was, again, as they, when they were crossing the Pacific every so often, you know, they're, they're heaving another dead sailor overboard. Eventually, these, these 18 guys get back to, to Spain and, in all thankfulness for their survival, you know, they parade through the, the street of, of Seville and, in penitential garb, wearing any you know, of their undershirts and uh, make their the the act of gratitude to to god for being spared the fate of almost all of the the companions on the voyage
0: so you know one thing that kind of strikes me in kind of reading your book is that there seem to be a lot of accounts of Magellan's journey um both from his boosters and also from uh some of his critics is is that, is that normal? Is it normal to have so much, I guess, um, so much writing about, about an expedition like this? And then also kind of, I guess also, who were these people that wrote about, about Magellan? What do they think of the man?
1: In a way, there's an exceptional amount of material about Magellan's voyage because these who did survive, had this tremendously dramatic story to tell, and also, to some extent, the story of their personal salvation, because to be spared, you know, amongst so few who are spared, does... You know, feel if you if that sort of thing happens to you it does feel like an act of kind of divine grace. it feels like a kind of miracle and that feeling comes through some of the surviving accounts. It's an unusual the also unusual however, in that um, Magellan himself of course didn't write an account. The narrative sources have to be supplemented. You can only really get at the truth of the voyage by turning to other sources, particularly the reports of inquiries held by both the Spanish and Portuguese crowns into, into watered, had happened and the interrogations by the Portuguese of the prisoners they, they took. So it's really a question of piecing all these different sources together. Of the narrative sources that have survived, I think some of them are really logbooks, and most of those don't go into a great deal of detail about what happened. But well, there are two narrative sources that are particularly that were written by survivors with the aim, you know, sort of perpetuating the, the memory of the the voyage. And I think that these two accounts are especially interesting. One is by Antonio de Pigafetta, who was a, a gentleman from Vicenza in Italy, and he he had um, uh, uh, a kind of humanistic upbringing. He was quite well. Educated. And he was, I suppose, what we might call a gentleman adventurer, and he took service with Magellan quite deliberately, with the intention, I think, of writing up the the voyage, he said he was you know, curious about the, the the unknown parts of the the world, and that does come through the way he wrote the voyage up. But he was Magellan's great eulogist. I mean, he was the sort of stooge, if you like, who communicated to the world the image that Magellan wanted to project with himself, this heroic, chivalric, rather romantic uh, image. Uh, and and you, may, you may remember Winston Churchill said that he, he, he wasn't afraid of the judgment of history because he intended to write it himself. Well, Magellan wasn't up to that, but he had this guy he sort of employed, Pigafetta, to. Uh, to write it for him, and Pigafetta's account is full of this sort of mood of religious exaltation. Pigafetta really felt that God had spared him, you know, with the uh, with with the the intention that he should, you know, do something um, something notable, something. Um, uh, worthy with the life that God had 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 granted him as a result of sparing him from the disasters of the voyage. And he also, um you know, he he, he has a religious vocation because he's a religious knight of the Order of of St John. So that comes through very Strongly, but even more strongly is his loyalty to Magellan. I mean, Magellan was a a revolting man in many ways, but he was capable, he definitely had some charisma, and he was capable of inspiring loyalty. The other great account of the survivors was just by an ordinary seaman who has a terrible life. I mean, he's one of these guys who's, who's, who's imprisoned by the Portuguese and eventually he makes it back to Spain after many years and all of his companions, or most of his companions, have died in captivity. And when he gets home, he finds his wife has, 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 has married somebody else and alienated all of his property. Uh, so, so it's a sort of moment in the, the history of Magellan's voyage. And his account is... Uh, um, you know, it is obviously extremely interesting because it does give you the sort of perspective of an ordinary seaman. And by the time he wrote it, he'd obviously kind of forgotten a lot and got muddled about quite a few of the details. But it is, a, you know, it's a precious, it's a precious document. Which, although it may not tell you all the truth about the voyage, gives you this additional perspective.
0: So I want to end with something you kind of mention at the very end of your book, um, which is, I'm I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but kind of the idea of the first circumnavigation of the globe is, it's it's a strange historical event to celebrate. Um, I think you note that no one tried to sail, uh, well, not that no one tried to sail Magellan's route afterwards, but it proved to be. Uh, very difficult and not commercially viable. Um, no one uses it for trade. They all use different routes. Um, so, I guess. But what's actually the legacy of of Miguel's expedition? And perhaps to phrase the question differently, how might the world be different if it had failed? If he had, you know, done what he was supposed to do, let's say, or had just turned back at the at the straits because it was too difficult.
1: Well, of course, the voyage was a failure. It was a failure by every measurable standard. It failed. It didn't produce the uh, consequences that they didn't even attempt to perform the tasks that the king had specified and it didn't achieve what Magellan wanted for himself it was also a failure in the sense that almost everybody died <laughs> most of the ships were lost and it didn't make a profit I mean one of the many myths about this voyage is that uh, you know at the end when they finally get back to Spain they've got a cargo of spices which, which pays for the entire financial outlay of the, the expedition. Of course, that's not taking into account all the loss of life, including all the indigenous lives killed and all the villages burned and so on. Uh, but even that isn't true because actually the the costs of the voyage continued to have to be paid for many years, including sort of things like pensions to widows. The costs of the accounting for the expedition, you know, the, the the accountant's fees amounted, you know, to more than the um, uh, the the, 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 the Profit ascribed to the cargo of spices that they they brought home. So it was a failure in every respect. And I, you know, I think that what emerges from your question, Nicholas, is the problem of you know how do reputations get made and why is is Magellan so celebrated and 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 why does he alone of all these dead white male explorers of the period escape, you know, the sort of obloquy and the lust for vengeance and the hatred which um, his fellow explorers seem to inspire in the politically correct and the crazily woke nowadays. Uh, I, 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 I'm really not sure I've got an answer to that question, but I think it's true in general, isn't it? That you know, what moves history, what changes the way we think and behave, it's not the facts as they happen. It's the falsehoods people believe. And Magellan's has, you know, been very, you know, it failed in every measurable way. It's been successful in generating a sort of mythopia. <laughs> been successfully generating all of myths. And I, I, you know, I think to a great extent, Antonio Pigafetta, the guy I mentioned who wrote up Magellan's voyage in gratitude for and admiration of him. I think to some extent, he was responsible for laying the foundation of this this legend. and now you know you can see that people think <laughs> that Magellan was a great, great hero who who advanced the cause of science and the, I'm good. None of that isn't true. It made absolutely no difference. I mean, even people even continued to think that the world was very much smaller than it is, even after Magellan had crossed the Pacific and the the, the evidence that he'd accumulated at the size of the world just you know gets lost, it gets gets forgotten, it gets omitted from the the record. So the the material and scientific outcome of the voyage is pretty much zero, but the sort of myth value that it generates is enormous.
0: Do you think there might be something to him kind of making it to, I guess in some ways, not quite planting the Spanish flag in the Philippines, but, but doing something similar to that? Um, is that potentially a legacy of of Magellan's expedition, or would that have happened potentially anyway?
1: Well, I I don't think you can say it's a legacy of Magellan's expedition. I mean, that the Spanish appropriation of the Philippines happens later. I guess you could say that Magellan helps to plant that ambition in Spanish breasts and in the kind of... um, you know, the the decision making processes of the monarchy. And I suppose you could also say that although his voyage was was such a disaster, uh, the very fact that that some survivors got back to Spain did create the illusion that maybe, you know, with better management and with the experience of Miguel's voyage behind them, they might be able to make a success of of reconstructing his voyage, following the route that he he pioneered. Of course, all those. Expectations came to nothing, and the in the few years following Magellan's voyage, the the Spanish monarchy and some merchants who were foolish enough to renew investment in this sort of project all, you know, came to grief, and the, the outcome of future expeditions was was just as bad, really, as that of um, of Magellan. So. In that sense, I suppose you could say that it's very difficult to know whether, if Magellan hadn't attempted his project, the Spanish crown would have remained um, active in trying to acquire the Philippines. But I think probably they would. I think in the long run, Magellan's voyage didn't make any difference to that either. Because as soon as somebody like Cortes, you know, had conquered Mexico, he immediately started thinking, how do I get to China? You know, so crossing the Pacific became part of the project of conquering the new world or an extension of that project. And that would have been the case, I presume, even if Magellan had never existed and his voyage had never happened.
0: So with that, I think that's a great place to interview with Felipe Fernandez Armesto, um, author of Straits Beyond the Myth of Magellan. Felipe, I actually have a couple final questions for you, which is um, where can people find your work and uh, what's next for you?
1: Well, it's very kind of you to ask. I, I, I'm, I'm flattered by the idea that people might not want to avoid my work. I'm afraid there's an awful lot of it, and I, I guess it's pretty easy to um, to acquire uh, um, a, the it's a, it's formidable. <laughs> I'm very old because <laughs> in a long lifetime I've produced quite a formidable. Forty, I suppose, of scholarship, um, uh, and that is all available. And also, I have journalism, broadcasting, and stuff like that. So, it's, it's not difficult to 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 track my my work um, down. I think probably there's all too much of it out there. Uh, as for what's next for me, well, of course, I I've just had a <laughs> came out, similar to such of the vagaries of publication. Another book of mine has come out almost simultaneously uh, with. Straits. And that's a book in Spanish about the history of engineering in the Spanish global monarchy, which sounds rather boring, but uh, it's really about the infrastructure. It's about how engineers created sort of infrastructure in the Spanish global monarchy, which enriched people and which helped to secure the allegiance of communities that benefited from the Spanish empire. So it's really a book about what is it that makes pre-industrial Empires work, and at the moment I'm writing with a jointly with a a young a, a, a colleague of mine who's an anthropologist. Um, we're, we're working together on a a history of primatology a subject, which has long interested me, and in which I I offer a course almost every year at the University of Notre Dame, where I work. Uh, I'd say that that's that's the 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 main focus of my my um my research at the at the moment i'm also working as a sort of spin-off project on that on an edition of the work of someone a primatologist who's almost forgotten but who was a great pioneer richard lynch Ghana, who actually conducted the first scientific fieldwork expedition dedicated to primatological working, he was working on gorillas and chimpanzees in Gabon early in the 1890s. And that's incredible, you know, because if you ask the most educated people, who did the first primatological fieldwork? They'll, of course, say Jane Goodall. But that wasn't until the 1960s, you know, 70 years after this almost forgotten but very interesting figure. So we're, we're working on a, um, uh, an edition of of his uh, account of his expedition as well.
0: So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R I Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsiaViewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find Council Author Interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. The ARB Podcast is on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more information on who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Felipe, for joining us today.
1: Many thanks to you, Nicholas. It's been a great treat to talk to you.